Good morning, everybody. I, uh, uh, before we dig on in to the book of Joel, uh, I feel it's important to uh, at least address uh, what's uh, happened uh, this past Wednesday at a shooting at uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in South Florida. Uh, I read a quote from a pastor uh, who said, our prayers have the power to prevent this from happening again and the power to shift something in society that is allowing evil to run rampant. And I thought to myself, do I believe that? So I, I want to ask you, do, do you believe that? Do you uh, truly believe that uh, our prayers, your prayers, have the power to prevent this evil from happening again and the power to shift something in society that is allowing evil to run rampant? If you don't believe that, then you have a much bigger problem. If you don't believe that, then the chances are that um, you weren't participating in our 40-day prayer challenge. If you don't believe that, but maybe you are participating, uh, then you don't really expect your prayers to make a difference, and then uh, you have a lot in common with the people of Judah that the prophet Joel was trying to warn as we get into that in our story today. Brothers and sisters, I don't... um, speak for the elders on, on this, and I don't uh, speak uh, for the, an official statement for Foothills Church, but I'm going to speak to you from my heart. Um, this is not a political problem. It's not an educational problem. It's not a mental health problem. And it's not a funding problem. It's a spiritual problem. Tragedies like this come from evil. There's another pastor who responded. He's at a church up in Portland, and he says, the thing to emphasize in the midst of tragedy is the gospel. The problem is sin, and the solution to sin is the gospel. Amen. We're in a spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 say, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's because of this truth, this reality, that we are instructed in the very next verse, in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. All the more reason for each one of us individually and as a church, corporately, to be praying. Praying for communities like this one who've experienced evil to its worst degree. Last week, we asked you to concentrate your prayers on on the elders, and this week, we're asking you to concentrate your prayers on the staff. It's 
what this card is. I know I covet them. And I do believe I can speak for the rest of the staff as they covet your prayers as well. That's the army coming together. And I hope that you're not just praying for us, but you're praying for so many other things as well. If we didn't think prayer made any difference, trust me, we would not be asking you as a church body, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be praying for us and praying with us. Your prayers are not some magical incantations that will bring about your desired wishes. Your prayers are powerful. Why? Because of who you are praying and directing your prayers to. The one who has the true power. The one true, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-merciful, unconditionally loving God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Three in one. And because of this, I'd like to lead us in a time of prayer. And I'd like you to be in prayer as well. Quite honestly, I don't care if you listen to me. I'd even prefer you didn't, knowing that you were praying individually as well. So tune me out. I have no problem with that. Just like my kids do sometimes. And just like I do to them sometimes. But tune me out so that you can focus your prayers. You pray for those who are affected by the tragedy in Florida. Pray for the schools, the faculty members, and the administrators of all schools in that region. You can pray for the local schools, our local schools. And for the faculty and the teachers and the administrators. Pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a combatant against evil in every single situation. And pray that God's patience with us does not run out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we can't even come close to trying to wrap our heads around the evil of this world. So many questions unanswered. But Father, we don't have to have all the answers. We just have to know the one who does. And so we come before you and pray. We bow our heads, but we bow our hearts. Lord, may it start in us with a prayer of repentance. Not to beat us up over the things that, that you've already forgiven us for in the past, but to repent of the things that we have not brought to you. Repent of the areas in which we still try to hold on to and don't want to hand over to you. Repent from our thoughts, whatever direction they have gone that is away from you. 
Repent of our actions and our words that do not bring you praise, do not bring edification to others. Lord, may it start with me. And may it start with us. And may our little church here on the corner of Arroyo just, uh, Father, you see and you know. May you do a mighty and powerful thing. We thank you for your mercy and your compassion. And Lord, we ask that you would just cover the community who has lost so many, so many children and adults. Lord, may your love just be a constant rainstorm in their lives. May there be nowhere they can go where they can get away from your love. May you use others in their community and throughout our country to bring encouragement and hope. Lord, we mourn with them. And I want to lift up our community. And I don't know why you have spared us. But Father, through prayer, we just come to you and and ask for your continued protection. And Lord, I want to pray for the teachers and the administrators who do their very best to educate and keep our kids safe. Father, would you free us from being arrogant enough to think that we have the answers And can we learn from, from your word today how we can draw near to you. So I lift all these things up to you, Father, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the only answer. Amen. I'd uh, love for you to open up your Bibles to Joel, if you haven't already, and uh, we're, we're going to get ready to dig on in. Um, i got to get myself back. Uh, if you were here last week, it's the next book after the book of Hosea, or it's the book in front of Amos, which... Uh, we're going to be teaching on next week. And although the book of Joel contains only three chapters and uh, is seldom read, I mean, honestly, if I were to ask you how many of you have uh, read the book of Joel if you weren't involved in our Bible reading plan, I, I think very few hands would show up. And I, I would probably be one of them because I had to read it way back 
in uh, one of my uh, Bible classes at Biola, but that was over 30 years ago. So, it is one of the most stirring of all the prophetic books. Who wrote it? Well, little is known about the prophet Joel beyond what he shares uh, about a few personal details contained in here. He identified himself as the son of Pethuel in in verse 1, and he preached to the people of Judah and expressed a great deal of interest in Jerusalem. The name, as uh, Rick said, Joel, Joel, uh, I'm sorry, I always say that anyway because I have a nephew named Joel, and we always tease him with that. Um, But in Hebrew, it means the Lord is God, or Jehovah is God. A pretty cool name to have. Um, Joel also made several comments uh, on the priests and the temple, indicating a familiarity with the temple worship and the center of worship, which was right in in Judah. Uh, Joel often drew upon natural imagery, the sun and the moon and, and the grass and the locusts, and in general, he seemed to understand the reality that truth must have an impact on us in the world, the real world. Well, where are we? You know what? Um, if you look uh, on your uh, roadmap inside in the upper right-hand corner, it says, uh, you know, unique things about Joel. Not clear when it was written, likely in the period of Ezra and Nehemiah. You know, if you read, it is so divided. You have some scholars who say he had to have written it about the time of Joash. And the reason, excuse me, why he didn't mention a king is because Joash was just a boy and his mother, the queen, was a ruthless woman who was killed and then he had to wait a little bit before Joash took that rightful place of king. And uh, so th- some commentators uh, will put him way up in, in the 1800s, or I'm sorry, in the 800s, mid-1800s, mid-800s. <laughs> um, and and um, others will put him down here because as, as we saw in our video, and, and, and there's great great cases for both um, because he cites and he has read so many of the other prophets and he refers to them in his writings how could he have possibly been one of the first prophets um, uh, dated about the similar time of Elisha when he he seems to know all the rest of this Uh, you know what I'm not going to get I'm not going to get caught up in that but um I am just going to say uh, that uh, later dates of the book have been defended by various scholars. The late 7th century or early 6th century or sometime in the post-exilic period. And so uh, any time from late 6th century to the late 4th century. So uh, most modern scholars seem to date the book of Joel sometime between 400 and 350 B.C. I'm not sure I go with that, but that's okay. It's just me. Um, The book focuses its prophetic judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah uh, with frequent references to Zion on the temple worship. In Joel chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and 14, in chapter 2, verse 23, and in chapter uh, uh, 3, verse 16 and 21. And Joel's familiarity with the area and the worship in the temple suggests that he lived in Judah And probably, possibly, he even lived in the city of Jerusalem itself. 
Chuck Swindoll believes that the book of Joel's importance to the canon of Scripture seems uh, to stem from its being the first to develop an often mentioned idea, the day of the Lord. While Obadiah mentioned it, uh, that this probably the very first in recorded scripture, Obadiah 15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Joel's book uh, gives some of the most striking and specific details in all of scripture about the day of the Lord. Just some details. Uh, days are cloaked in darkness. Armies that conquer like consuming fire and the, new, uh, and the moon turning to blood. Rooted in such vibrant and physical imagery, this time of ultimate judgment, still future for us today, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, makes clear the seriousness of God's judgment on sin. Uh, I put up a chart up here, and guess what? I, I, I know, if, particularly if you're not in the first two rows, you're probably not going to see it or read it that well, but here's just one of probably about three or four different charts I, I, I saw, and I thought, okay, this is, um, I think this is really good to help us. If you'll notice on the very top, it says Joel, then underneath that in the bold, the plague of locusts, and keep following straight down. The past plague, and that's chapter one. The future invasion, I believe that's chapter two. And then the historic day of the Lord, the imminent day of the Lord, in chapter three. And then uh, it, it has in there, it says, oh, well, wait a minute, Craig, you're only talking about, if you go down farther, it says chapter 1 to only 2.11. Well, I still think some of those things are, are still going on over because uh, you'll talk about the future of Judah over there, the ultimate day of the Lord. And then in the middle section, it says the call to repentance, return to me. The character of God is key, and we'll be looking at that in verse 13. And uh, then the universal appeal, how at first it was, it was to the, the Israelites, but the, who came from Judah, not who were up in the tribe of Israel up north. And, and, and that's where chapter 2, verses 12 and 17, you know, is then going to this universal appeal. And then the future of Judah. Now, um, in, in the Hebrew Bible, Okay, uh, these, these tail end uh, chapters uh, are, are split up in four chapters, not in three. But our English Bible has three. And so uh, Chuck split it up and he says one of the greatest promises of hope in all the Old Testament and that's in verses 18 through 27 of chapter 2. And then uh, concerning uh, the Spirit of God, this when Joel says, hey, here you go. God's going to give us his Spirit which we know came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then it's concerning the judgment of God and concerning the kingdom of God and that ultimate day of God. And that's how he, he closes out the book. And then you can see the emphasis. There's desolation at first, and there's exhortation second, and then there's restoration. You might want to write that down. That there's desolation. Wow. Yeah, it, it is. But, but that's okay. And then there's exhortations like, hey, let's go. We have a merciful and compassionate and loving God. And, and, but we've got to repent. And then he goes on 
and there's restoration. Amen. And so then we can see um, uh, in that parallel verse that for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning from Psalm 30, verse 5. And then the theme, repent for the day of the Lord is near. So what's the big idea? Well, um, using what was at that time the well-known locust plague of Judah, uh, Joel capitalized on the recent tragedy to dispense the Lord's message of judgment and the hope of repentance. In referring to the, to the terrible locust plague, Joel was able to speak into the lives of his listeners and imprint the message of judgment into their minds. One commentator said, like a, a brand sears the flesh of an animal. Man, that's a visual, isn't it? That's what it was like, that impression of the message of judgment. Another commentator notes that the, the, the day of the Lord, which is a reference not to a single day only, but to a period of judgment and restoration, consists of three basic features. The judgment of God's people, the uh, judgment of foreign nations, and the purification and restoration of God's people through intense suffering. We find each of these elements in the book of Joel as it offers one of the most complete pictures in Scripture of this ultimately redemptive event. In his book, A, a, a Historical Survey of the Old Testament, Eugene Merrill writes, Joel sees the unfolding of Judah's sin and the punishment which must follow. Joel sees it. And he knows uh, the punishment that's followed. So what is the day of the Lord? Our video shared that uh, in chapter 1 it recalls the past day of the Lord. Chapter 2 it foretells a future day of the Lord. And then in chapter 3 it speaks of the future day of the Lord. The future day of the Lord. Did you, did you see that? Remember that from the video when they talked about here's the past day of the Lord locust invasion. Here foretells a future day of the Lord when the Lord's army is going to come. And then in chapter 3, it speaks of the future day of the Lord when he returns again. So uh, what else is the day of the Lord? Well, it, it, it usually identifies events that take place at the end of history. Isaiah um, uh, talks about that in, in chapter 7, verses 18 through 25. And then one key to understand these phrases is to note that they always identify a span of time during which God personally intervenes in history, directly or indirectly, to accomplish some specific aspect of his plan. Uh, most people associate the day of the Lord with a period of time or a special day that will occur when God's will and purpose of his world and for mankind will be fulfilled. Hmm. Will be fulfilled. 
Some scholars believe that the, the day of the Lord will be a longer period of time than a single day. Some believe that it'll be a period of time when Christ will reign throughout the world before he cleanses the heaven and, and earth in preparation for the eternal state of all mankind. Other scholars believe that, that the day of the Lord will be an, an instantaneous event when Christ returns to earth to redeem his faithful believers and to send unbelievers to eternal damnation. Now, the phrase, the day of the Lord, it's used uh, 19 times in the Old Testament, five times right here in the book of Joel, in chapter 1, verse 15, in chapter 2, verses 1, chapter, uh, uh, in, in verses 11 and 31, and then in chapter 3, verse 14. And it's used five times in the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament passages dealing with the day of the Lord often convey a sense of imminence or nearness or, or, or expectation. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3 says, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. Joel chapter 2 verse 1, let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. In chapter 3 verse 14 in Joel, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then finally in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7, it says be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. This is because Old Testament phrases and passages are referring to the day of the Lord often speak of both a near and a far fulfillment. Don't try to get caught up in thinking it's, it's only one or the other. It's, it's both. As does much of the rest of the Old Testament prophecy. Some of the Old Testament passages that refer to the day of the Lord describe historical judgments that have already been fulfilled in some sense. While others refer to divine judgments that will take place toward the end of the age. Joel speaks on both of those. I have to be careful when I'm drinking. I have this huge cold sore on the top of my lip. And you know, this morning, when I went to rub the sleep out of my eyes, and I rubbed, and I went, oh, rub that sucker right off. It's like, I took a drink of water a little earlier and forgot, and that plastic just cut right on into it. How do you like that for a side note, huh? Yeah, yeah. The New Testament calls it a day of wrath or a day of visitation and the great day of God Almighty in Revelations chapter 16, verse 14. The scriptures indicate that the day of the Lord will come quickly like a thief in the night. And therefore, Christians must be watchful and ready for the coming of Christ at any moment. Now, besides uh, being a, a time of judgment, it will also be a time of salvation. A time of salvation as God will deliver the remnant of Israel fulfilling his promise that all of Israel will be saved. That's what he said in Romans chapter 11 verse 26. Forgiving their sins and restoring his chosen people to the land he promised to Abraham. 
And the final outcome of the day of the Lord is, will be that the arrogance of man, oh, this is a good one, right? Make sure you write this down. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The ultimate or final fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the day of the Lord will come to at the end of history when God with wondrous power will punish evil, all evil, the kind of evil we spoke of just earlier and fulfill all of his promises. Now I want to go to the setting in Joel chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 20. The circumstances that precipitated the book of Joel surrounded a locust invasion in Palestine that was of unprecedented uh, proportions. And uh, um, I- I'm going to... I geeked out on this, but um, uh, uh, in, in order for us to interpreting the locust invasion, uh, if, if you have an ESV study Bible, you can turn to that right, right on the page before uh, the um, Joel starts, but for the rest of you, here's what they have in there, and I love this, interpreting the locust invasion. If chapter one says this, then chapter two means this. Okay, follow along with me. So go ahead, Brooke, and put that first one on up. So if chapter 1 describes an actual locust infestation, then chapter 2 presents a heightened description of the same invasion. That's one interpretation. Uh, Another one is if if chapter 1 describes an actual locust infestation, then chapter 2 issues a, a warning about a coming military offensive. Now, the third one, if chapter 1 describes an actual locust infestation functioning as a prophetic forerunner, then chapter 2 uses that imagery to portray a human army in terms of a decisive conflict on the day of the Lord. And then finally, if chapter 1 describes a military attack in terms of the metaphor of a locust invasion, then chapter 2 represents the coming of an enemy usually viewed as the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And the reason why I bring this up is because it, depending on, on how you view where Joel was written, then you, you have to kind of make sure you, you, you can't fit one. Like you can't have Joel um, as uh, written in eight, 835 or 838 if you believe, number four, that it represents the coming of an enemy usually viewed as the Assyrians or Babylonians. Or you could. You could. But if you, if you uh, held to it afterwards, then it would be easier to be able to say, oh, yeah, we've already experienced that. Uh, I, I happen to land in number three. That's why I kind of highlighted it. It doesn't mean you have to land there. It's just where I landed. It, it describes an actual locust infestation functioning as a prophetic forerunner. And then chapter two uses that imagery to portray a human army in terms of a decisive conflict on the day of the Lord. I have no idea who that, who that human army is going to be. But that's just uh, where, where I fell at. Now, uh, the locusts had devastated the country's um, agricultural economy with the unwelcome consequences extending to every important aspect of commercial, religious, and national life. To further complicate, a severe drought had uh, exhausted all of their water supplies. 
causing life-threatening shortages for animal, uh, for animal and human life. Locust invasions occasionally uh, present significant problems in Palestine in modern times. Now, you can go back and, and look at some really fascinating things, particularly there's a guy, J.D. Whiting, who, who did this um, article for National Geographic back in December of 1915. This picture isn't from that. But uh, it, was, it was incredible how he described that locust infestation. Now, there, there's four words for locusts that are used in this verse, in verse 4. Whether these words represent uh, different life stages of the locusts or whether virtual synonyms are being used to underscore the severity of damage caused by the relentless waves of locust invasion, it, it's not certain. We don't know. But the four Hebrew terms used in this verse are, are of uncertain meaning because the English translations show a great deal of variation in dealing with these. So, for instance, uh, uh, gazam. Uh, in, in one translation, it means a palmer worm. Uh, in another, it's locust. In another, it's cutter. In another, it's gnawing. In another, it's a swarm. In another, it's chewing locust. In another, it's cutting locust. In another, it's a giant locust. And then the other word that's used there to describe locust is also uh, swarm, locust, locust, swarm, and great locust. In, in another word, yellick, is used canker worm. Ah, I've got a canker sore, but I can't yeah, canker worm. That, that, ugly. Um, a creeping locust, a young locust, hopping locust. And then finally, the, the fourth word that's used is casil, uh, and, and that means caterpillar or grub or devourer or someone that's a stripping locust. And so it's debated whether these Hebrew terms uh, describe different species of locusts or similar insects of different developmental stages of the same species. And while the last seems more likely, given the uncertainty over the exact meaning, I, I put up here for you, I, I like the net translation. The net translation has transliterated the Hebrew terms uh, right there in combination with the word locust. So you can see in, in verse 4 it says, what the gazam locust left, the arba locust consumed. What the arba locust left, the yalak locust consumed. And what the yalak locust left, the hasil locust consumed. Now, Stephen is in the midst of taking Hebrew right now, and he's probably sitting over here going, you just butchered the crud out of those, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. Hopefully I'm not too far off, but still, I'm looking forward to being able to, to learn correct, correct pronunciations and, and all kinds of things like that for, from him as he continues his studies. But you get this idea that there's some kind of a progression there's some kind of, of a progression that just kind of says, wow, um, you know, when, when I look at that, and it says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Man. Okay, this is where I really geek out. What are desert locusts? You might be wondering. Oh, you're saying, no, I'm not. Too bad. You're going to know. Um, they're related to a common grasshopper. 
And uh, they're normally shy creatures that live in very arid regions up in North Africa to India. And when the local conditions, okay, here's what happens. When the local conditions create uh, such a scarcity of food, it forces them to crowd together. However, these four-inch long insects undergo dramatic transformations in both appearance and behavior. Swapping their usual tan and green colors for a gaudy black and yellow color, juveniles suddenly become more aggressive. And they start seeking out other desert locusts. Instead of trying to keep a low profile, they get ready to swarm. And this usually and normally happens after a rainy spell. In arid places like Egypt, um, heavy rains can cause a burst of vegetation, which stimulates a boom in, in, in uh, the locust population. And as long as the food holds out, the insects are happy. But once the desert returns to its normal dry condition, competition for resources promotes overcrowding. Why do they swarm? They swarm for self-defense. I never knew that. But are you ready for this? Here's what their self-defense is from. Um, self-defense from, from each other. That was interesting. So a team of researchers, and this is just a few years ago, from uh, Australia, England, and U.S., they got together and they started uh, researching and then they discovered that uh, locusts in their aggressive phase, in that stage, uh, they develop a keen appetite for other locusts. Basically, they become cannibals. And so whenever a desert locust feels another locust bump onto its legs, it surges forward to uh, escape from being eaten. And this forward motion repeated by many individuals in a group, it's like, whoa, whoa, hey, whoa, 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 hey, stop, whoa, whoa, it's just in building them, and they can recognize, whoa, and so here's what happens. Um, becomes a major impetus for the swarm to surge ahead. And how much damage can they do? Well, an adult desert locust, it's been estimated, can consume its weight in vegetation daily. You might think, oh, big deal. But a typical swarm can eat as much as 2,500 people can in a single day. And a large swarm, one that stretches for tens of miles and includes millions or even billions of hungry locusts, can strip a farmer's field in literally minutes. This is the description that is given in chapter 1. Desolation. The plague of locusts that had uh, so devastated Israel's crops carried an important lesson. Sin is not just an individual matter. It's a corporate one as well. And the proper response was for God's people to take responsibility for the sins of their nation and seek God's forgiveness. Speaking through the prophet, the Lord called for Israel's national and religious leaders to publicly express their grief for their sin in a holy fast and a sacred assembly. Uh, some people uh, a week ago started in the Lent season of giving something up. That 
That's what this is all about. You give something up, but it's not just so you say, oh, well, I'm going to give up. Uh, I don't drink coffee, but wow. I don't, I'm, I'm going to give up coffee. That would be a really poor example because I don't drink it. But you know what? I love ice cream. I mean, a lot. <laughs> a lot. You can ask my family. And so if I were to say, I'm going to give up ice cream, you know what that would mean? I'm not just giving it up, but that would mean whenever I would normally get myself a bowl of ice cream or get myself a scoop of ice cream, that would mean I'm using that time that I would normally do it, and I told you, I do it a lot, and I would focus in on praying to the Lord. I'm not just letting go of something, I'm replacing it with focused attention on the Lord. When some people uh, fast for their meals, they don't just, well, I'm skipping you know, lunch today, I'm not eating dinner tonight because I'm fasting. No, they use that time and then they are focused in on, okay, Lord, because they don't want any other distractions. And that's what was calling the people to do. The priests were instructed to take the lead and summon both the elders and the people to the sanctuary in order to fast and cry out to God for deliverance. Now, on your sheet, you could see on here that there was a call to repentance, and, and, and even Joel did it. But um, you know what? As you get to chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, you just kind of go, wow. Yet even now, the Lord says, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your garments. You know what that means? For, for the Israelites, uh, that meant, oh, they would love to be out in public and just rip their clothes. That's what it means to render, to tear. And that was a visual expression. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So that, wow, people would see, wow, he must be really be sorry. Right? Wow, look at how, look at how spiritual that guy is. And yet, we're told here, tear your hearts it's an inside action that needs to be done. It's not an outside so that everybody can see it. It's inward. What a challenge. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he's merciful and he's compassionate. That's why. He's slow to anger and, abound, and he is boundless in loyal love, often relenting from calamitous punishment. Verse 14 says, who knows, perhaps he will be compassionate and grant a reprieve and leave a blessing in his wake, a, a meal offering and a drink offering for you to offer to the Lord your God. This comes right after the desolation of chapter one. It said, but if you would just return to the Lord, if you would repent, truly repent from the inside, not the outside, then guess what? God's gonna restore. He's gonna renew Folks, it has to start with us individually. As upset as we are to, to continually feel like we're hearing about these senseless killings, it's got to start with us. And we're not going to blame anybody. We're going to pray. And I'm not trying to be simplistic. I'm just trying to be focused in on the only one who can make a difference. Drop down to verses 25 and 27 of chapter 2. 
says, I will make up for the years, this is what the Lord says, that the Arba locusts consumed your crops, the Yelek locusts, the Hasil locusts, and the Gazam locusts, my great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat, and your hunger will be fully satisfied, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has acted wondrously in your behalf. My people will never again be put to shame. Verse 27, you will be convinced that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. One uh, author wrote uh, that in verse 25, he says, how many years of our life has been consumed by the locusts? Self in one form or another has sorely robbed us of our golden sheaves, reducing them to dust. Self-indulgence, frivolity, wantonness, spendthriftiness of time, of talent, and opportunity, sloth and lethargy, mixed and evil motives, secret sins. What a crew are there. He said they have played the part of the caterpillar. They've played the part of the locust with the green promise and the yellow produce of our lives. But God waits to forgive, to put away from his mind the memory of the wasted past, to place a crown of a new hope upon our head. Now where do we see Jesus in this? Where do we see him? Well, in verses 28 and 29. He says, after all this, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your elderly will have prophetic dreams. And your young men will see visions, even on male and female servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. The coming of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who applies Christ's redemption, is predicted right here. And Jesus is the one who judges nations, but who also restores his people. I'm going to end there. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your love for us. Man, God, so incredible. And I thank you for your patience with us as you call us to repentance. As you call us from an inward action. Lord, may we as as your people, may we offer back to you the, the wasted years, the wasted opportunities. And Lord, may we start fresh today. And may our focus be renewed. We may come from a desolate land, but Lord, That is not our future. And our future is secure. And our future is in a renewed land with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Father, please take our prayers and restore us. In Jesus' name, amen.